we did have our prayers answered. It was just a different prayer. It was a prayer from the beginning. Okay, we, we, we love to have a child. We were given a child. That was an answer to a prayer. Instead of looking at it as what we lost, look at it as what a gift we got. And then you're not bitter. You know, then it only leaves you with one position, which is gratitude. Thanks to Bambi for supporting my show. HR managers aren't cheap. Salaries average $70,000 a year. Go to Bambi.com slash dream job to schedule your free HR audit. Also thanks to Coinbase. Cryptocurrency might feel like a secret or exclusive club, but Coinbase believes that everyone everywhere should be able to get in the door. Whether you've been trading for years or just getting started, Coinbase can help. For a limited time, new users can get $10 in free Bitcoin when you sign up today at Coinbase.com slash dream job. And thanks to Raycon. Raycon wireless earbuds are the best way to bring audio with you. That's why Raycons are my go-to for the on-the-go audio. Right now, get 15% off your Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash dreamjob. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller Show. I know I say this all the time, but today's episode is so special. Mitch Album is here and I've never met him, but I read Tuesdays with Maury when it first came out. And then I read... The Five People You Meet in Heaven, which is another one of his beautiful books. And those two books were so powerful. And talking to him was one of the most incredible conversations I've ever had. I'll never forget it. I pretty much started crying about four minutes in, and I don't think I stopped. I think you'll see exactly why I was so touched by who he is and what he has to share. It's so deep. And it's so simple. And boy, does the world need that right now. So I hope that it touches your heart as much as it did mine. And I hope that you send this conversation. I hope that you really, I know I say it every time, like if this inspired you, send it. But this one, this one really moved me in a way that I don't know, very few things do because He's a person, you know, he's not, he's not a religious figure. He's not a priest. He's not a rabbi. He's not a shaman. He's not even a, a professor. He's just a good person. He's just a person like all of us. And yet he is living a life that is so good, that has so much meaning. And that's so inspiring to me. And I love you and I love this audience and I feel like the people that I've gotten to meet in this audience are good, like really good, doing good and, um, and seeking that. And uh, I know that a lot of times it feels like those people are invisible, but I feel like that's what's holding up the whole world, just regular people being extraordinary in very ordinary moments. And so this conversation, I'm just so grateful that it's here today. And I hope that you do send it to a friend and say, hey, this might touch your heart. And I wanted you to know I was thinking about you. So let's dive into it. Mitch Album is here today. He's a number one New York Times bestselling author. He's a screenwriter, a playwright, a radio host, a nationally syndicated columnist. He's a philanthropist. He's a songwriter. He does it all. 
Mitch is an exceptional writer. He's written five consecutive number one New York Times bestsellers, which have sold more than 33 million copies in 42 languages, and four of his bestsellers have become movies. You probably read one of his books, including Tuesdays with Maury or The Five People You Meet in Heaven or Finding Chica, so many good ones. And we're also going to talk about his latest book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, which is another masterpiece. Mitch shares with us what the book is all about and the powerful story from his life that inspired this book. So you definitely want to stick around and get yourself a copy of any of these books if you haven't already. I am so inspired that not only has Mitch done so much with his work, but he gives back to the world and to his community. Not only has he founded six charities in the Detroit area, but he also operates an orphanage in Haiti and they have 55 children there and they're putting those kids through school and then through college. I mean, his heart is just on another level. It's an honor to have this conversation with him. And I honestly, I really didn't stop crying because he had such powerful, beautiful words and the genuineness of who he is. It just struck me so deeply. I hope it resonates with your heart too. Without further ado, please welcome the remarkable Mitch Album. I'm so excited to, you know, so often now that we have this podcast that has like 30 million downloads, all these people send me books and they're like, I want to come on. And once in a while I say to Emma, can you ask this person to come on? Cause I want them to come on. And so you were one of those people that I was like, I would love to talk to him. So thank you for, thank you for coming. Well, thank you for putting me in that very small group. I appreciate it. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about your journey first of getting into this incredible, incredible life where you're just writing one beautiful book after another. What was the path like? Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? I read some stuff about how you actually wanted to do something else. How did it come to be that you were writing books? Well, okay, it's a long story when you've lived as long as I have, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll put this brief version of it. I know I didn't want to be a writer, had no interest in it as a kid. I read plenty as a kid. I, you know, I think every writer probably read a lot as a child, but I wanted to be a musician, and that was my first love, and that's all I ever intended to do, and never really thought about making any kind of living and any kind of writing. I was a musician for a number of years, and I lived over in Europe for a while, I actually was a, a nightclub singer on the island of Crete. Which <laughs> oh, my makes, God. Look, Who can say that? that? Yeah, not too many people. Looking back on it, that was actually the best and highlight of my musical career. <laughs> so, uh, I didn't do very well in America, but uh, I lived in New York for a while after that as a starving musician, the same way that a lot of many musicians have begun. And, uh, you know, at one point I just was worn out by it and I wasn't enjoying music the way that I had always loved it. I would come home at the end of the day of being turned down by one record company after another, or one producer after another, and I wouldn't even put music on. And that was weird for me because I always, with my house was always in my home apartment, so I always had music in it. So one day I was at a supermarket buying my uh, allotment of popcorn and agendas, <laughs> uh, which is what I lived on back then. And uh, they had a newspaper that they gave out, you know, in the supermarket for free. It was a local paper. And I, they throw it into your basket. So I had it in a basket. I took it out and it had a little ad at the bottom of it that said, uh, if you have free time, we could use some help with the newspaper. 
so I worked mostly at nights, you know, in clubs and things like that. So I had some time. So I went over to the office. I think I was the youngest person by about 90 years. And, uh, and they they said, uh, OK, can you go to this meeting tonight and write a story about this meeting tonight? And I'd never written anything. And uh, it was a parking meters meeting. That's what I remember about it. They were there. I can't take it. Oh, my God. Parking meters. Uh, they were debating whether they should raise the rates on the parking meters by a nickel uh, on 110th Street in Queens. And so I went, showed up with the pad because all I knew about writing was I'd seen all the president's men, the movie. <laughs> so uh, I thought, well, that must be how it works. Show up with a pad and you write down what they say. <laughs> And uh, I guess I'd read enough newspapers to mimic what I had seen. And I wrote a story the way that I had seen newspaper stories written. You know, your first paragraph is basically the nut paragraph of what you're trying to say. And then the second paragraph is a quote. And the third paragraph, you elaborate. I turned this thing in. And the next week, I went back to the supermarket. And they threw the newspaper in my basket. And there was my story on the bottom of the front page. Wow. Which shows you how slow a news week it must have been that the <laughs> parking meters made the front page. But I had that little tingle that, you know, I think writers get when they see their name in print for the first time associated with something. And that began my walk into journalism and then sports journalism. And I got a master's degree in it. And I never thought I would be writing books, but uh, that came later as sports books. And and uh, I wrote a few sports books that did well. And so I thought, OK, well, this will be what I'll do. I'll just be a sports writer and I'll write some sports books periodically. And then when I was 37 years old, uh, I had this experience with my old college professor, Maury Schwartz. And that really turned my whole life in a whole nother direction. Oh, it's so beautiful. And it's like so amazing. It's awesome to think that this newspaper got thrown into your basket which led you to a meeting about parking meters. And then there I was in 1998, probably it was when I finally bought Tuesdays with Maury and I was like sitting in my bed in my college dorm crying because you were like, were at a supermarket. Like it's, I love that story. It's, it's so powerful. And you're such a good storyteller, obviously. We'll maybe circle back to some of that other stuff, but let, let's get to this moment. So you decide to write this book why did you feel like, okay, I need to sit down with him and write this book? Tuesdays with Maury? Yeah. Oh, well, that really wasn't the decision to write the book. I had been very close with Maury when I was in college. Uh, I took every class that he offered. Uh, we walked around campus together. We ate meals together. I went to his home. I mean, he was really more like an uncle, you know, to me. And, and I spent all four years in his company. And he made me promise when I graduated that I would stay in touch. And I promised I would. And then I broke that promise for 16 years uh, while I got first, I got tangled in the music business. And then I got into the journalism business and I, I, I advanced very quickly. Once I got into the journalism business as a sports writer, I had a lot of success early on. I was bounced around, hired to different places. I got on the SPN radio show, television show, and I was just totally wrapped up in myself, you know, and uh I reached 37 without ever having called him. And then one night I happened to be flipping the remote control. And there he was on the Nightline program talking to Ted Koppel about what it was like to die. And that was the only way that I even found out that he was sick. So I called him. It's a funny story because 
I had called Maury coach back in college. That was my affectation for him. I coach, how you doing, coach, that kind of thing. And when I saw him on Nightline, I decided I would call him up. That was all it was going to be. I was just going to call him up, make a phone call, ease my conscience, and then I guess go back to my busy life. And when I called him up, I had long since forgotten this nickname. And uh, the nurse answered the phone. She handed it to him. And I remember exactly what I said. Hello, Professor Schwartz. My name is Mitch Album. I was a student of yours in the 70s. I don't know if you remember me. And the first thing he said to me after 16 years was, how come you didn't call me coach? And so needless to say, by the end of the conversation, I was going to visit him because guilt is a very powerful motivator. And uh, I still I was going to visit him one time. That was going to be it. But uh, I was just so taken with the way he was handling his dying from Lou Gehrig's disease and the fact that he couldn't move his legs and could barely move his arms at that point and knew he was going to die, but he was still so vibrant and had so much to say and wasn't at all interested in the things that I was interested in. And I remember going home that night saying, you know, you're, you're 37 years old, you're perfectly healthy, and he's 78 years old and dying, and he seems 10 times more content and happy with his life than you are. And there's something the matter here. And so I began to go back uh, every Tuesday and one after another, after another, after another. And it turned out to be all the Tuesdays that he had left in his life. And we kind of did this last class together on what's really important in life once you know you're going to die. And wouldn't it be great to have that knowledge now when you're young enough, as I was, healthy enough to maybe change your life and do something about it. But it was never supposed to be a book, Kathy. I mean, it was it was just an experience. Uh, the book came about when he told me one day that he was afraid that he was going to die twice. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, first, I'm going to die when I die. And then I'm going to die when I realize wherever I am next, that my family has to sell the house to pay my bills because of all these bills I've accrued for years and, you know, dying slowly, we don't have the money to pay it. So it was then that I got the idea, well, maybe I, I could write a book to help him pay his bills. And I didn't tell him that I was going to try to do that because I was afraid, well, if I say that and I go out and then I fail, I'm just going to make his life worse. So I privately went to these different publishers around New York all while this was all going on. And I, I, I said to them, this is kind of an amazing experience as an old man talking to a young man about what matters in life. I don't need a lot of money. Here's exactly the amount that I need. This is how much money he needs. That's what I need. And uh, everybody said no. Everybody said no. Publishers, famous publishers, not interested, boring, depressing. Nobody's going to want to read a book like that. You're a sports writer. One, one very prestigious publishing house, who I won't mention, told me that I didn't know what a memoir was. And I should come back in 20 years and maybe I would understand what a memoir was. So I really would have given up, uh, to be honest, Kathy, if, if it was for me. I would have thought, well, this is a terrible idea. Look at how many people are just spitting at it. It's Forget it. OK, I'll go on to something else. But because it was for somebody else, which is a lesson in and of itself, I pushed harder and I found a publisher who was interested in it. And when we were able to come to an agreement a few weeks or more, and I went to him and told him that, uh, hey, uh, you know, all these conversations we're taping and stuff like that. Well, there's a publisher that wants to turn it into a book. 
And he said, oh, really, who? And I said, Doubleday. He said, ooh, I heard of them. I said, well, not only that, but uh, they're going to give us some money. I want you to take all the money and pay off your medical bills so you don't have to die twice, you know. And I always say, Kathy, that for me, that was the end of Tuesdays with Maury, the experience, because I had kind of, you know, come from a place where I was really just looking out for myself and my own career and those kinds of things to committing to do something that would help somebody else. And at the time had no promise for me. I just wanted to be a sports writer. So for me, this was just a like, a, OK, this is going to take me some time to go off to left field and do this, but it's worth doing because I can help him. I finally did one nice thing for this man who had done so many nice things for me. So, you know, I, he never read a word of Tuesdays with more. I didn't start writing it until after he passed away. I wrote it as simply as I could. I didn't want to, um, you know, embellish it with a lot of heavy duty words and look, how, look, look at me. I can write about death type of thing. I, I, I knew that that would be a bad idea. So I just tried to keep it really simple. And in fact, it was supposed to be a 300 page book. That was the contract. But I'd never written a book of that nature before. I had no idea what 300 pages looked like. And, and I was typing it, you know, and so I just turned it in and they called me and they said, uh, well, OK, you know, we'll go over this. But first of all, this, this is way short. And I said, what do you mean way short? And they said, well, it was supposed to be a 300 page book. This is going to be like a 175 page book. And I said, well. That's all I got, you know. I mean, I, I told the story. That's all I had to say. And to their credit, they said, "That's okay. We'll make it a small book." And if you've ever seen any of my books, I don't got one line. <laughs> this is the only one I have here. But you see the size of it. It they're small, and uh, the only reason that they're small is because there wasn't enough of Tuesdays with Maury to fit a big book because it would have looked like a comic book so they made it small and then unbeknownst to me tuesdays with maury became this you know big success and so then every book i wrote afterwards had to be that size you know no matter even if the i wrote a big one there's still that size so um it wasn't supposed to be kathy i mean all of this is a long answer to your question but i didn't decide to write that book it sort of happened and then I wasn't planning on that book being anything. They printed 20,000 copies and I thought I'd have them in the trunk of my car for the rest of my life, you know, and I'd be giving them out at Christmas. So, and then a funny thing happened. They just, people began to read it. There's no other explanation for it. It, did, it came out in August of 1997. Didn't show up on a bestsellers list until November of 1997, nearly four months later. Yeah, almost four months later, and then didn't reach the top of those lists until April of the following year. So it was just a slow sort of people passing it around. I'm not even sure it could happen today, but it did back then. And that changed my life. I've never written a sports book since. I've uh, my whole direction of my, you know, interests and outside life and everything has changed as a result of that. But it was never my intention. As John Lennon famously said, Life is what happens to you while you're busy making plans. And my plans were something else. And the world had other plans for me. I'm just like, so brought to tears. Like, I'm sure this is what happens. You know, you do this. Like, I feel like Robert De Niro in that movie. But you know that you there's no way you've told this story ever without people just like weeping in front of you. It's so that level of kindness both ways 
it just moves you. It's just, it's so powerful. And I'm so grateful to hear the story, especially getting to hear it from you in this moment, because how meta, what a story inside of a story. I mean, I had never heard that story before. What do I live under a rock? I just knew how unbelievable this book is and how much it impacted my life. But the story, the intention behind this book is one of the most gorgeous things I've ever heard in my entire life. I am changed by that story. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So let's talk about that experience a little bit because we all got to read about it. But how did going through that with him change your own personal life? Obviously, it changed your what you wrote clearly from right. that point on. But how did that change you fundamentally to sit with him over those Tuesdays? Well, yeah, I think there, it's a good question because there are kind of two parts to how Tuesdays with Maury, the whole experience, uh, it changed me. You know, the one was the actual meetings and long before there was anything written down or any book. And the other is the book. The meetings themselves, I think there were individual lessons that I took out of it that I would go home and say, wow, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Or I hadn't thought about that. The ones that stand out to me in, in hindsight are when he said, don't buy the culture. If you don't like it, you don't have to buy into it. And I had bought into the culture from the music business. That's very much, you know, you're trying to have a hit. You're trying to be popular. You're trying to be, you know, everything's about the culture. Uh, and the fact was I didn't fit in with the music culture and that's why I failed at it. And then, you know, the writing culture, the media culture, you're in sports and journalism, again, trying to fit, you're, you're defining the culture. And, to have him say that, like, hey, you don't have to go along with this. You can create a whole other life outside of it. You know, he didn't watch television. He had his own kind of little world. That stuck with me. So did the stuff he talked to me about marriage. Because I just got married right then and there. And what was going to be, you know, key to a successful marriage. And what forgiveness was probably, there were, there were two big ones. Forgiveness was one, because I saw him cry over this story about his this friend that he had may have been very close for many years and then uh they lost touch with one another because uh he moved away and then what when the guy moved away maury's wife got sick one time and the guy didn't call and maury took offense he thought he was my friend he should call and so when the guy finally did call months later maury was obstinate about it he was oh now you call that kind of thing and the guy said, gee, I'm sorry. I said, no, 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 you know, never mind. It's over. But it wasn't over. You know, a crack had developed in the friendship. And because that crack was never really addressed, it grew and it broke apart the friendship and they lost touch with one another. And here I was now with Maury and he was talking about this and he started to cry. But I mean, cry like the kind of tears that come from your solar plexus, you know, like, <laughs> like that kind of crying. And he said, I found out that. Norman was a guy's name, that he died from cancer a few years ago. Why did I let that stupid disagreement separate us for all these years? It means nothing to me now, nothing. All I wish is that I could have held his hand and told him that what a good friend he had been to me all those years, and I'm never going to be able to do that. And he looked me square in the eye and he said, Mitch, if there's anybody you care about or you love who you're fighting with or feuding with, let it go. Just 
let it go. If you're 100% right and they're 100% wrong, say you're wrong if it'll end it. Because when you get to where I am, and he would always say that when you get to where I am and you will get to where I am, you're not going to care who was right or wrong. And that really impacted me. And I've tried my whole life not to ever hold grudges against people who I care about because too much time can be lost. So that was a major one. And the other major one was giving is living, which um, somebody sent me a shirt with that. Even on. <laughs> I didn't realize I was wearing it until I saw it in the camera. I said, well, I have that on my shirt. That came from watching him, you know, when people would come in and out and he wouldn't let them talk to him about him for very long. He would start saying, so what's happening with you? What's happening? What about that job? Well, what about the divorce? And they'd end up crying and, you know, opening, spilling their guts. And then they said, well, I, I don't know what happened. I tried to comfort him, but he ended up comforting me. And I finally asked him, I don't get it. Why, why, you know, you're the one who's dying. Why don't you just tell people, let's not talk about your problems. Let's talk about my problems. And he said, why would I take from people like that, Mitch? Taking just makes me feel like I'm dying. Giving makes me feel like I'm living. And I, I, it's profound. It's simple, but it's profound. And uh, I've tried to live my life ever since that way. And that's had a major impact on me and charities and things that I do. And, you know, it's a big part of my life now. So probably during that, that's, that those are the biggest things during the actual visits. You know, It's so exquisite. I absolutely love everything about this conversation. But before we keep going, we're sure to thank our sponsors. If you've been looking to level up your financial portfolio, it's always good to diversify. Well, have you ever thought about cryptocurrency? Backed by the world's leading investors, Coinbase keeps your portfolio safe and secure while adding crypto into your mix. Coinbase offers a trusted and easy to use platform to buy, sell, and spend cryptocurrency. They support the most popular digital currencies on the market and make them accessible to everyone. They also offer portfolio management and protection, learning resources, and a mobile app so you can trade securely and monitor your crypto all in one place. Millions of people in over 100 countries trust Coinbase with their digital assets. Whether you're looking to diversify, just getting started, or searching for a better way to access crypto markets, start today with Coinbase. For a limited time, new users can get $10 in free Bitcoin when you sign up today at coinbase.com slash dreamjob. Sign up at coinbase.com slash dreamjob for $10 in free Bitcoin. This offer is for a limited time only, so be sure to sign up today. That's coinbase.com slash dreamjob. A lot of people didn't even make resolutions this year, and I get it. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't still find a way to shake things up, whether it's switching up your workout routine or going someplace new. Whatever way you challenge yourself this new year, there's no better way to do it than with a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears. I love using my Raycon earbuds when I'm running errands or going out for walks. And not only are they super comfortable, but they never fall out. Even when I'm moving around a lot, like picking up things around the house or having my own personal dance party, and my dance parties can get pretty Pretty, pretty intense. So I'm really excited because I'm teaming up with Raycon and they have a deal for you. Go to buyraycon.com slash dreamjob to save 15% on Raycons. Raycon wireless earbuds are the best way to bring audio with you because no matter how much you shake things up, literally no matter how much you shake, you know they won't fall out of your ears. Their everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever. There's also awareness mode for when you need to listen to your surroundings. You can take Raycons with you wherever you go. Raycons offer eight hours of playtime and 32-hour battery life. And they're priced just right so you can get quality audio at half the price of other premium audio brands. Right now, you can get 15% off your Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash dreamjob. That's buyraycon.com slash dreamjob to save 15% on Raycons. Buyraycon, R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash dreamjob. I studied comparative religion in college and then 
went on a birthright Israel trip, uh, had no intention of being intrigued to stay there, wound up staying there for almost three years, just learning Torah in Israel. And I, I grew up Jewish, but totally secular, but I was so moved by it. But I can tell you that spending two and a half years there with some of the holiest, sweetest, kindest, smartest people, the last 22 minutes of listening to you is like the holiest words. It's unbelievable. Well, I don't know about that. I'm sure the people you were with are far more qualified than me, but, but those are the things that, that stay with me. And, um, you know, the posts part of it, you know, the book part of it, I can sum that up very simply. Here's what happened before Tuesdays with Maury, I would get recognized in airports cause I had been on television, you know, I was on TV every Sunday and, uh, people would stop me and they would say like, hey, sports guy, you know, uh, who's going to the Super Bowl? And I would just keep walking on the escalator, you know, I'd go, uh, Patriots, you know, and just keep walking. And then after Tuesdays with Maury, people would uh, recognize me and they'd say, hey, um, my mother just died of cancer. And the last thing that we did was read your book together. Can I talk to you about her? And you can't go, Patriots, you know, it doesn't work. And so you have to stop. And I stopped. And I stopped and I stopped and I stopped and I stopped to this day. What is it? 25 years later, there's not a day goes by if I go out in public that somebody doesn't talk to me about somebody who they had who passed away or who died, who was sick, who went through what Maury did, or they had a mentor who was like Maury, whatever. So when you hear those things, Kathy, every day, you start to change. And the way that it changes you is that you realize you empathize with all the pain in the world and you realize how many people I, I used to look at those sporting events when I would go to them and I'd see 100,000 people in the stadium. I'd be sitting up in the press box. I look down 100,000 people in the stadium. And before two sets of more, I just look at what are these people that are just cheering for this one play or this one player and after I would look at them and say, look at all those 100,000 people. I bet if I just walked around row to row to row and said, who's in your life that's sick right now? Who just died that you're grieving? What sad thing are you trying to get over? That every one of them would have a story. And that became my worldview. That became my understanding of, of life. And um, I became much more sensitized to other people's pain and what people go through and my books reflected it. You know, everything I wrote since Tuesdays with Maury was about those kinds of things. So that was really how the book changed my life, but that didn't happen, you know, until obviously it came out and people started reading it. It's unbelievable. And I love that you're literally like a quote unquote regular person. Like you're not a shaman, you're not a rabbi, you're not a priest, you're like a regular person <laughs> and everything out of your mouth is the most beautiful thing. And like, I swear to you, you, not that you have the time to prove me right, but I've done 600 episodes once in a while. I like tear up, but like, I'm, I haven't really been able to stop crying because it's so kind and loving and the amount of purpose that you just keep feeding all of us who are listening right now. It's like, it's too much. It's so good. So you went on to write another book that I also loved and read, The Five People You Meet in Heaven. I was so blown away and touched by this book. And I'm sure everybody listening has lost somebody and wanted so badly to be like, what happens up there? You know, like, could she just send me an email and let me know, like, she's okay. You know, what is your perspective? Like you wrote this book and I'm just curious before we even get into the book itself, like, 
What do you think? Because I was curious the whole time as I read it, what you actually think when you hit your head on the pillow at night, you personally. What I think about heaven or what is it? Well, actually, the answer to that and that book are intertwined because the book, uh, if you remember, is a long time ago. The lead character's name is Eddie. And that was the first novel I'd ever written because uh, after Tuesday, I'd never written any fiction before. And after Tuesdays with Maury, everybody wanted me to write Wednesdays with Maury, you know, and Chicken Soup with Maury and (laughs) Venus and Mars and Maury. And I I, I couldn't do it. You know, the same people who didn't want Tuesdays with Maury now wanted like 13 episodes of it. And I said, I'm not going to do that. I I just wrote that book. That was it. That's uh, that was what happened. There's no more to it. There's not going to be sequels or anything like that. And they said, well, okay, then what are you going to write? And I I didn't really have any answer. And I, I just knew that another nonfiction book, no matter what I chose, whatever subject I chose, yeah. it would be, well, it's not Maury. You know? And so I said, well, why don't I just ditch that whole idea and just write, I'll try fiction. And they all said, no, no, that's a terrible idea. Oh, <laughs> and, my God. At every turn. Yeah, they never turn. get it. They never every- get it. But I said to them, well, that's okay. You told me I was crazy to write Tuesdays with Maury, too, so I can be crazy twice. And But I didn't know how to write a novel or anything like that. So I said, well, I got to base it on something real. You know, I can't, I'm not good enough to just invent characters out of the blue. And my uncle Eddie, who was just like Eddie in the book, he was 83 years old when he died. He was a World War II veteran. And <sighs> he, he used to go through life saying that he didn't matter. And I loved it. It was, it was built like Popeye. You know, he had these big forearms and big muscles, and he would wear those beater T-shirts, but he would tuck them in at dinner so that, like, it was formal wear. At the, you know, <laughs> okay, I got it tucked in. I can sit at the table. And uh, he talked like this, you know, just like Eddie in the book. And he used to always tell me this story. This answers your question. He used to always tell me this story every Thanksgiving about this time that he died technically for a yeah. minute on an operating table. You know, they lost him. And he, he was having a heart issue. Mm. And he said that he remembered floating above the bed and looking down and seeing all his dead relatives were gathered at the edge of the bed. So, of course, as a kid, you would say, well, what'd you do? What'd you do, Uncle Ed? And he'd say, what'd I do? Uh, I told him, get the hell out of here. I'm not ready for any of you yet. <laughs> and uh, apparently he scared them right back to heaven and he went back into his body and he lived another however many years. So I always had this idea in my head, that's what happens when you die, because he was the only person I knew who had actually died, you know, and he would never lie to me. You know, he he wasn't trying to build a cult or anything. He said, that's what happened. That's what happened. So I always thought that's what happens when you die. There are people waiting for you. But then I wanted to write this book about him because he would always say, I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. I never been nowhere. I never went nowhere. I wasn't shipped to with a rifle because he was in World War II. And, and I used to ask him, did he kill anybody? And he said, I might have, which I always thought was a terrible answer to have yeah. to carry around in your life. But, you know, he was in the middle of fights and firing in the nighttime. How do you know where your bullets land? And so I decided to write this story for people like him, for him, really, uh, who don't think that they matter. And I thought, well, what if you go to heaven, like he said, and there are people waiting, but what if they're not 
people you know necessarily? What if they're people you just interacted with for like a minute or five minutes, whatever, but they change your life forever and you change their life forever? I always would think about like the times I'd be on a highway and I'd lose my concentration. I'd start to drift over yeah. to a lane and you're and you go and you pull yourself back. And then the person speeds by you because, you know, and you're too embarrassed to look at them. You're looking down because you almost hit them. Well, that person just saved your life. And they just zoomed by and you never even looked at them. But yet one day in heaven, you're going to have to say thank you for honking because I would have died if I went over the. So that was kind of the idea of it. And so it is tied in with my view of heaven because I kind of think that that's what happens. You get to meet your your loved ones and maybe you do meet people who just explain to you, you know, hey, you thought you didn't do this, but this is what happened. And this is because wouldn't that be heaven if you had your life explained to you? If all these questions about why didn't this happen? Why didn't I do this? And someone said to you, here, here's the big picture. Here's what you didn't understand. Let me explain it to you. That to me is heavenly. So that was, um, that became my first novel. Oh my God. And it's so beautiful. And I love knowing that this is like where it all comes from so deep and actually for whatever it's worth. And I'm sure you've now been hearing this stuff forever, but I did meet a woman who told me that she had gone around the world and interviewed almost a thousand people about their near-death experiences. And they had translators because there's people in Brazil and China and Australia, everywhere, all over France. And she said that there was this, like, depending on how many seconds or how long the person left the world, that there was a moment where they were aware of something kind that they did to someone. Like there was a woman who was like, all of a sudden I, I had died in, in a cardiac table. And the next thing I knew, I, I was a moment where I was in a shopping mall and I was late for a meeting and there was a kid who had, couldn't find his mother. And she goes, I didn't even remember this, but I guess I did stop. And I like helped him find his mom. And I went to my meeting like eight minutes late. But I, she goes, that's the kid. I saw, like, I saw that whole scene, which is just, so she said a lot of people saw scenes like that, that, um, that the insignificant seemingly, but not. And so that's wow. interesting. I have a few more questions, but first a quick ad break. When you're running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap. They cost an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, which is spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. You can contact your dedicated HR manager by phone, email, or real-time chat, and they'll customize your policies to fit your business, plus help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. It's month-to-month, no hidden fees, and you can cancel anytime. I think that if there's something in your business that feels heavy and drains all your energy, like HR problems, then it's worth it to hire someone else to handle it. So I love that Bambi is there to take care of all of this for you. And this way you can use that bandwidth to focus on the parts of your business that you do love doing. Go to Bambi.com slash dream job right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash dream job spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E.com slash dream job. So Now you've written so much and you've done so much, but just to jump ahead, just more recently, you wrote a book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat. What made you want to write this book? I mean, my first question before even the book itself is what keeps you like, you've already done it. Like you've had a a book that was on the New York Times bestseller list forever. Then you've had another book. Then you like, what is it that like wakes you up to like, I have more to say because you've already said so much. Well, I mean, first of all, you don't write books 
at least I don't write books with the, the valuation of them as if they're on a bestsellers list or not. I think most people who write books or at least novels and things like that, they feel they have a story that they want to share. Right. And for me, I always try to find like some lesson of life, some point that I've, that's been impressed on me that I think would make for a worthy point to remember after a story was over. That sounds a little convoluted or highfalutin or whatever, but, but what <laughs> I guess I'm trying to say is that I don't start with plots. I don't come up with like, I want to write a book about a guy who blows up shopping malls, you know, not that there's anything wrong with writing a book about a guy who blows up shopping mall. My mind just doesn't go there. My mind goes to, I want to write a book about people who feel they're insignificant. I want to tell a story about there's no such thing as, as being a nobody. And yeah. then how do I do that? And that became the five people. You I need. see. So for the stranger in the lifeboat, there's really kind of a two pronged thing to this. If you had read, and I don't expect, that you did. But if you had read the book that I wrote before, it was called Finding Chica. And it was a true story about um, a little girl from Haiti who we adopted. I have an orphanage in Haiti that I go to every month. I've been there for 12 years. And who are you? What's happening? Oh, my God. It doesn't end. The, well, the amazing things that's, that that's a whole story. That place is a story in and of itself. And I write about it a lot in the, in the Finding Chica book. But we have 55 kids that we raise there. And one of the kids uh, had a had a brain tumor when she was five. And uh, we brought her to America and hoped that we could just get the operation done and then bring her back. But she never went home. You know, it turned out to be a stage four DIPG tumor that no, no kid ever survives. And usually they're dead in four months. Um, but I knew that she was a fighter. Her name was Chica. And she was a tough, tough kid. And she was loud and brash and bold and fearless. And I said, she's not going to give up and die. She'll fight. And if there's a way to fight, we'll fight with her. And so that began what turned out to be two years that we traveled around the world, my wife mm -hmm. and I, um, trying to find a cure for what she had. And in the end, of course, we weren't successful. Nobody is against this. But she did live two years, which is like a year and a half longer than they would said she would. And during that time, we became a family and had the wonderful, amazing experience of of having a child, you know, which even though we have 55 kids in Haiti, we never had children of our own. We got married kind of late and it just didn't happen. So when she died, I, you know, I was very angry uh, at the world and God and everything because I couldn't understand why a seven-year-old. That's horrible. Taken, you know, um, especially one who had lived through an earthquake when she was three days old and survived it and then lost her mother when she was two years old who died giving birth to a baby brother because there was oh no. Oh my God. Her. So how much tragedy does one kid have to take? And then she and then she has to die. So I wrote the book Finding Chica and kind of in pain, you know, of, of the agony of losing her. And I wanted there to be a tribute to her. I wanted people to know her story and her life so that, uh, you know, even though she died at seven, people would always keep meeting her every time they they read the book. And then a few years later, kind of that pain had sort of changed into because you can't stay angry like that forever. I mean, nobody can live like that. And I tried to sort of understand it. And I came to realize that, uh, you know, we had prayed, my wife and I, that we would have children when we first got married, but it didn't happen. And so it was possible to think, well, that prayer was ignored. And then 15, 16 years later, we have this five-year-old suddenly is in our bedroom sleeping and on a little bed right in front of us, waking us up for breakfast and 
giggling and laughing and tickling and doing all the things that uh, beautiful things that a five-year-old does. And all I could think about was why did we lose her? And I came to realize I never asked the question, why did we get her? You know, what do we do to deserve that? And so I wanted to write a book about help and, and crying out for help and asking for help and how we ask for help. We pray, we have whatever form it takes. If you're religious and you pray to God, if you ask for the universe for help, if you ask the good of mankind to help you, but we all ask for help. And yet we want it like that. You know, we want our, we want it tomorrow. And if it doesn't come tomorrow, we feel like we've been ignored. And I wanted to write a book that kind of showed that, well, that's silly. You know, you have to be prepared for help to come in the most unlikely ways. So that was the idea before there was ever a stranger, a lifeboat or anything. It was like, I want to write about this thing about help and prayers being answered and all that. Then I got the idea, okay, what's the most like far-reaching, crazy, you know, uh, engaging way that people can cry out for help? And to me, that's in the ocean, you know, because I the worst, like if you said to me, what's the worst way you could die? It would be in the ocean because there's so many ways you can die. You can get eaten by a shark. You can, you can die of starvation. You can drown. You can get uh, capsized by a wave, you know. So I created this rich luxury yacht out in the middle of the ocean with all these rich, famous people on it who think that their wealth is going to insulate them from anything bad happening to them. And then suddenly the, the ship explodes, the yacht explodes, and everybody dies except 10 people. And five of them are the guests and the rich people on the on the boat, including the owner, and five are the staff that serve them. And they all get to this life raft somehow, and they're out in the ocean for three days. They're floating around. There's, they're running out of food. There's sharks in the water. There's, you know, they're crying out for help, like I said, crying out for help. And suddenly they see this body in the water, and they pull it into the boat, and it's this young guy, and he's alive. They can't understand how because there's no ship around or whatever. He's just floating in the water, and he's... He's very nondescript, average looking guy, and they pepper him with questions and he doesn't have anything to say. He's all silent. And so finally, one of the passengers says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. And that becomes this paradox of here they are calling out for help. All of a sudden, the Lord, someone claiming to be the Lord is in their boat and they don't believe it. They just say he's some kook with, who banged his head. And they say, you know, if you're the Lord, what are you doing here? And he says, uh, well, haven't you been calling me? I came because you called me. And they say, oh, so what, you're here to save us? And he says, I can only save you if everybody in the boat believes I am who I say I am at the same time. And, of course, you would think that would be pretty simple with 10 people who just want to be rescued, but they don't. And so it follows what happens as the situation gets more dire and the days pass and they're running out of food and somebody dies and somebody else dies and they get attacked by sharks and waves and storms. And, and meanwhile, they're all trying to figure out who this guy is. And it's kind of a parable for me over the last few years trying to figure out, okay, there's some powerful force out there, but why did it let bad things happen? But if I call out to help, was it real? Will it really answer me? And blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, it, it turned out to be a very it's it's proving to be a very uh, popular book, you know, because we're talking now it's been out for a while. And uh, I'm amazed at how many people have gravitated to this. I mean, uh, I thought it was kind of going to be kind of an oddball one, like, uh, well, not too many people are going to want to get this. But that's all right. It's something I want to write that is important to me. 
but apparently it's important to a lot of other people too. Oh my gosh. That's so beautiful. I just got it. I just started reading it and it's so, it, it just takes you in right away. And it's interesting. It reminds me like one of those things that I learned when I was studying in Jerusalem is this idea that like when the, when Jews were slaves in Egypt, there's a line in the Torah that says something about how, you know, then they finally called out to God and then, you know, the whole thing happens with Moses and everything else. Mm. And this line, like Rashi and all the commentators are like, it took them like a couple hundred years before that was ever like, oh, maybe we should do that. Maybe we should collectively ask. (laughs) We haven't, we've just been like, why is this happening? This is a terrible thing. It's not working out. It's very bitter. Uh, And then they did. And so it was actually, it says like it was supposed to be longer, but they finally asked for help. And it is interesting. It's like, where is God? It's like hidden because the last place we ever choose to look, you know, is there. Right. And it's, it's just unbelievable. Or that it's already been there and we've already experienced it, which. Right. Like, like I said, for me, I kind of came about after the fact and there's a moment in the, in the book, of course, when you, when you write a book like this, you get to play God a little bit, which is a very dangerous thing. Nobody should do it lightly. And I joke around that, uh, you know, they say, How, what was it like to write this book? I said, you wrote it like this, head down, head down, head up, head down, head down. <laughs> because you don't, want, you don't want a lightning bolt to come blow up your computer, you know. But I did get to ask some of the questions that I think if instead of me sitting here with you, Kathy, if God suddenly popped in and said, hey, I like your podcast, go ahead and ask me whatever you want, you'd have some pretty big questions to ask. And I tried to pose them in the mouths of the passengers who are on this life raft. And, you know, for example, one of them says, well, if you're God, do you answer prayers? And he says, I answer every prayer, but sometimes the answer is no, you know, which is something I've had to learn over time. And I've had some, actually some religious people tell me that that's kind of their philosophy too. Or of course, the biggest question, which for me was kind of the heart of the book, why do people have to die? And there's a moment in the book where the protagonist, Benji, he's been mourning his wife, you know, and and she died and he's, he's been mourning her the whole time. And finally, he's willing to accept if this person really is God, then he breaks down in front of him and says, well, then if you're God, why did you take my wife? And the answer is, why is it that when people die on earth, humans always say, why did God take them? Maybe a better question would be, why did God give them to us? You know, what did we do to deserve their love, their sweetness, their goodness? Didn't you have moments like that with your wife? And he says, yes, every day. And the answer is, well, those moments are a gift, but their absence is not a punishment. I'm not cruel. This is all part of a bigger picture. This Mm -hmm. earth thing is just one stage of it. I know that your loved ones, when you lose them, you cry. But I can assure you, they're not crying. And for me, you know, I wrote that page. I know the page number because everybody keeps asking me about page 241. And everybody who has read the book, not everybody, but a lot of people have commented on that page and that passage. And I'm Please, because that was the essence of the book for me, for me to look back on Chica and say, you know, wait a minute, we did have our prayers answered. It was just a different prayer. It was a prayer from the beginning. Okay, we, we, we'd love to have a child. 
we were given a child. That was an answer to a prayer. Instead of looking at it as what we lost, look at it as what a gift we got. And then you're not bitter. You know, then it only leaves you with one position, which is gratitude. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of these passengers in the boat end up having to find that out too. I mean, it's just so unbelievable. I don't have any, I'm not a writer like you. I don't have better words, I, but I think we, I don't even have a good enough word to explain just how s- sensational and special and mind opening and heart opening it is to to hear you speak. It's just such a gift. I'm sitting here thinking like your life has been assigned a mission. It's like, I, I look at everything that you're saying and it's like, you're sort of, having experiences so that you come out with these incredible healing messages and insights. And in that way, it's kind of like, wow, I mean, not always easy to go through, but the, the, the amount of purpose and meaning in your life because of how you're living it and because of what you're putting in the world as you go through it, it's just beyond like you ever stop and think, Oh my God, how many people have been affected in such a meaningful way because of the experience I had, what I took from it. Like that's talk about prayers being answered. It's like, well, maybe it's our prayers that are being answered by you being this guide for us. I don't think that that's it, but, but I do think that (laughs) he's like, Nope. Well, I just can't be at the center of something that important. But I think that what you asked me is essentially what I call the it's a wonderful life effect, you know, where every life touches another life in some way. And it doesn't have to be a writer, you know, because what you're saying is, okay, I might write a book and that affects tons of people. But who affected me in order to write that book? That might not be a famous person or whatever. Or, you know, in my case, it was Maury. Okay, so Maury took time to spend Tuesdays with one person. He didn't have to, he was dying. He could have said, look, I ain't got time for you. Or you didn't even bother to come see me for 16 years. I'm gonna spend time with more important people. But he took that time because he saw something in me, I guess he wanted to change or wanted to have one one last student that he kind of affected. And because he took that time with me, that's one person. So then I wrote about his story, his words, not my words, his words are the ones that resonate with Tuesdays with Maury. I just put them down. And and uh, now he's affecting all these people around mm-hmm. the world. He's not even here to teach it. You know, he's teaching all these people, but he's not here to teach it. And then they you were influenced by that book. Maybe you did something after you read it that cha- went over and did somebody else. And but who taught Maury that stuff? Somebody before him, you know, uh, and put that put those ideas in his head. So we're all like pebbles in a, in a pond. And then the ripples are just the effect that we have. Maury loved this story. I mean, he told it to me like every week. And I, you know, I was starting to think he had dementia because he said, yeah, let me tell you. So I said, you realize you told me this story, but he, he, he just wanted to tell it again about these waves in the ocean and they were flopping around and they're having a great time. And one wave is talking to the other wave and they're flashing. And then all of a sudden they see the shore. And this one wave says, oh no, Oh no. And the other says, well, the wave says, what? He says, look, there's the shore. And the other wave says, yeah. He says, well, this is terrible. The other wave says, why? He says, because we got a couple more flips and then we're going to hit the shore and we're going to be gone. We're going to be nothing. And the other wave says, no, you don't understand. You're not a wave. You're part of the ocean. And then he would say, part of the ocean. Get it? 
<laughs> I'd say, yeah, I got it last week, the week before, the week before, and the week before that. But as corny as it is, it is a beautiful sort of uh, parable because we are, you know, we all kind of affect one another, but we all kind of go back into this big ocean of humanity that we've all been affected before. So that's why I defer mm. credit that you're giving Beautiful. me. There's a million waves behind me that led to whatever got me to write a book. It didn't start with me. It won't end with me. And wow. uh, we're all part of that big watery uh, existence, I guess. That's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And it's so true. It's really hard. It's a, the ego has like a big illusion of separation, but really it's like all one. Right. So one last question. My, my husband, whose dad died in 1987, died young is from Detroit. So my husband likes all things Detroit. So for his like 40th birthday, I got him a Shinola watch and, you know, it's like a running thing. So you have a ton of stuff that you do philanthropically, but some of it is, is around Detroit. Why, why is that? What is it about that city that you love so much? Well, I wasn't born here, but it took a chance on me when I was young. You know, I was a really young columnist and I came to town and or they could have said, you know, the reaction could have been, he's just a kid. I was in my mid 20s. We don't have to listen to him. Or we don't want to read what he, and instead they, they made me feel really at home. And I was fortunate enough to have some success in sports writing and uh, was recognized and began to start to get offers to leave Detroit in my 30s. And uh, they would always say, well, we know you want to get out of Detroit. You know, I mean, you want to stay in Detroit. Right. You know, and I, I started to take offense with that. I said, what do you mean I want to get out of Detroit? I mean, I'm not imprisoned here. This is I like it here. You know, and the more that would kind of happen the more sort of defensive I got about where I lived. And then, you know, we hit some really hard times here and I formed some charities to try to help combat that. And, and I got deeper and deeper dug in. And then we had really hard times in 2006. Uh, we kind of preceded the, the whole recession, you know, the bubble, the yeah. real estate bubble thing. And we were at one point we had 25% uh, unemployment and, um, I remember Sports Illustrated called and asked me if I would write this story about Detroit because uh, our football team at the time was winless. It was going through an 0-16 season. They lost every single game, which is really hard to do. And I said, no, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have time to write a freelance magazine article. Thank you. But, and then after I hung up, like the next day I thought about it, I said, I know what they're going to do. They're going to send a writer in from New York and he's going to go to a couple of bars and talk to a couple of out of work auto workers and write the story about the decay of a Rust Belt city, you know, mm -hmm. and I've seen that story so many times after living here. I mean, I've been here 37 years. And so I called them back. I said, OK, listen, if you haven't assigned it, I'll write the story on one condition. No editing. OK, I'm going to give it to you. You either run it as is or you can kill it. You don't have to pay me anything. It's fine. But if you're going to take it, you're going to run it as is. And they said, all right, we'll take that chance. And I just wrote this story about what it was ostensibly a sports story, but it was really about Detroit. And it was about sort of being the way that the rest of the country looks at us. And, you know, the way that on Devil's Night, you know, which is the night before Halloween, back 40 years ago, there was a series of fires every year that would happen there. And so from that point forward, news crews from around the country would send their news crews in on Devil's Night 
just to film our fires and then talk about how Detroit is burning. You know, it was this every every blemish we had. That was the only thing that anybody was interested in talking about. And I just wrote it really. I wrote it in like a day. You know, I just was standing up for our city and saying, you know, we're not the gum on the bottom of your shoe. I think I, I used to use that phrase or something. And um, they took and they ran it verbatim and put it on a cover. And and that kind of I don't know something about that moment and all that said, you know, I'm here for life. I can't write that and then go, you know, I'm here for life. And I established some charities here and we started. Um, I had a very telling moment really in that uh, during a Super Bowl back in 2006, they wrote a story about how they're going to have a, a party for the homeless, a Super Bowl party for the homeless. And I couldn't understand what is a Super Bowl party for the homeless. So I looked into it. It turned out to be that they were gathering all the homeless up off the street because they didn't want them bothering all the people who were coming into town. So they were going to put them in this big, massive shelter for three days, let them watch the game. But then we were going to kick them back out on Monday morning. I thought, this is terrible. You can't do that to people. You know, that that's uh. wrong. So I went down to a shelter that week and I spent the night at the shelter. Um, not, oh my God. Pretending, not pretending to be anybody that I wasn't or whatever. I just wanted to, I was going to write about it What and, and write basically, you can't give this to somebody and take it away. So I go down to the shelter. They give me a bed. They give me a towel and soap and everything. And I'm online for dinner. And I'm online with everybody waiting. And this guy in front of me, turns around, he looks me up and down. He says, aren't you Mitch Album?" And I said, yeah. And then he looks me up and down again. He says, so what happened to you? And, and I, I just laughed, you know, when he said it. But then I realized, wow, you know, like, that's a perfectly legitimate question. What happened to you? Like, I'm sure he never expected to be on that line. And during those years, 06, 07, 08, 09, there were a lot of people who used to dole out soup and soup kitchens mm. who then were getting it on the other side. And it really affected me. And I, I wrote a story and I included that anecdote. And I wrote this column about how, you know, I wanted to raise enough money to keep everybody that we were putting in the shelters for the Super Bowl in these shelters until the weather warmed up. And we estimated it would be about $60,000. Do you know that within a week, one week, I had $320,000 that people sent me just for $25 here, $30 there. And I used that to create this thing called Say Detroit. S-A-Y Detroit, which stands for Super All Year Detroit instead of Super One Weekend. And that has grown from that $300,000 thing, which we started with the helping homeless people to it's now a multi-million dollar operation that runs nine charities here in Detroit that I oversee all of them. It starts with wow. kids uh, and daycare centers all the way up through. We, have, we, we, we started the nation's first medical clinic for homeless children, which had never been one. We have this rec center, which is a digital learning center that has, you know, a, a 7,000 square foot learning center in the center of it, along with the baseball field by the Tigers and a football field by the Lions and a, a basketball court by the Pistons and all that. We do seniors programs and veterans programs. Oh, and, my God. And it all came from that one story. And now it's it's half my life. And the other half is Haiti, you know, where I I'm, I go. I'm there every month for at least a, uh, four days to five days, sometimes two weeks. So that's most of what my existence is now. And it's I say this with absolute pride. Maury was 100 percent right. That's I'm the most alive when I'm doing all that stuff. That giving is living thing isn't just it's not a little slogan. It's really for real. And I'm never happier than when I'm at the orphanage. I never sleep better. I'm on a four inch mattress, you know, in, in, in 100 degrees. <laughs> 
and I wake up, I go to bed happy every night, wake up happy every morning uh, because I hear the kids screaming outside, Mr. Mitch, are you up yet? Are you up yet? You know? And uh, what's better than that? You know, and uh, there's no possessions. There's no, there's no fancy cars or stuff like that, but it's great. And, uh, you know, I, I just hope I, I'm given a, a lot of years to be able to give back like that. It's a joy. Oh, my goodness. I am absolutely a better person for having gotten the chance to sit here for the last hour. I, you're Thanks. just an extraordinary being. And I don't know, I guess people feel compelled to tell you stories like this all the time. But two years ago, we had a little baby boy who he actually pretty far along into the pregnancy. I had to terminate it because he had trisomy 18. Um, and just to pull it all together, cause we didn't ever have a boy before. And my husband wanted to, uh, name him Hank after Hank Greenberg. And my husband's a big Tigers fan. And, um, and so I don't know, I never told anybody that, but it was like, we've talked about losing people and we've talked about Detroit and sports. So I felt like I should share that with you for some reason, I'm but, sorry. um, you went through that. I was like, yeah, it wasn't awesome. It was hard. It was hard. But um, this is such a life-giving conversation and uh, you're just the best. So tell everybody where they can get the book, where they can buy the other books if they haven't gotten them before over the last many, many years and where they can maybe help with some of the philanthropy you're doing. I'd rather skip the book stuff. I'm sure people can find, figure out where you get the books, wherever you get books. But the our orphanage can always use help. I mean, 55 kids and 40 staff members, and it's it's an expensive undertaking. And and we're responsible for everything from the moment they come in when they're two days to two years old, to we put them all through college. And right now, oh I my eight, god, I've eight of my kids are up here in college now, and one of them's just graduating in May, and he's going to medical school, which is great. Except we're gonna have to pay for medical school too. And so if they want to help out at our orphanage, um, 100% of what people give goes right to the kids. There are no administrative costs, no running the charity costs or anything. <sighs> I don't pay all that myself. So here's what it is. Havefaithhaiti.org. Havefaithhaiti.org. Okay. Um, it's all the stories all there. And we could sure use help with that. And if they're more inclined to help in Detroit, it's called saydetroit.org. That's easy to remember too. So awesome. Thanks for giving me the chance to say that. And uh, thanks for the conversation. I really enjoyed it, Kathy. Thanks for all the good questions and the sharing of your stories. You're like the greatest mensch there ever was. So it's like such a pleasure. I enjoyed every part of this, except these accolades. I know it's too much. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Thank you for being here. We're going to send this out. We get almost a million downloads a month. And so hopefully people will click on these links and give and give and give. You are right. awesome. Loved it. Thank you. Anytime. It's just such a powerful conversation. I'll never forget it. Here are the takeaways. Number one, life is what happens to you while you're busy making plans. Number two, let go of your grudges, even if you know you're 100% right and they're 100% wrong. Just end it. Number three, giving is living. Number four, everyone has pain. Everyone has a story. Number five, help comes in the most unlikely ways. Number six, when we lose someone we love, instead of asking, why did God take them? Ask, why did God give them to us? What do we do to deserve their love, their sweetness, their goodness? Those moments are a gift. Number seven, every life touches another life in some way. Number eight, you're not a wave. 
You're part of the ocean. We're all part of the ocean. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this show. Thank you for being here. Words can't describe just what a gift this is, how grateful I am. We have so many good guests and so many great shows coming up. Morgan Harper Nichols is going to be here, Martha Beck, Ben Rector. So definitely make sure that you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you want to watch these episodes on video and you can always see me talking to these guests like this one we did today with Mitch, you can always pop over to the YouTube channel where we update the interviews every episode. You can watch them all at youtube.com slash Kathy Heller. Can you think of somebody who would be touched by today's conversation? Can you think of someone who would find this meaningful and somebody who, who would benefit from hearing this because it would just touch their life? If the answer is yes, email this to them, text it to them right now, or post about it on your Instagram and tag me at kathy.heller and tag Mitch. He's at Mitch Album, which is A-L-B-O-M. I know that he'll be so touched to see how this conversation impacted you. I love you so much. If you go ahead and repost this and you tag me, I'll send you a code so you can grab a Starbucks drink of your choice. I'll leave you with a song and I'll talk to you soon.
the sky.